Hello and welcome back, Ryerson. It's Friday, February 28th, and this is Blue and Gold. For the Ryersonian, I'm your host, Dan Drigo. And I'm your host, Latoya Powell. Everyone goes through their own unique journey when it comes to their emotional and psychological well-being. It should come to no surprise that each person requires their own distinct way to speak about mental health. Today, we will be exploring the unique challenges that the Black community faces when it comes to living with mental health issues. It should come as no surprise that each person requires their own distinct way to speak about mental health. A cis black male will have a different experience than a queer black male, and a cis black female will have a different experience than both a cis black male and a queer black male. We are here to provide a platform for the black community to discuss the issues that most impact them. Counselor Eden Abraham joins us in studio to talk about mental health issues faced by those within the black community. Later, we'll hear from Samir Bully a co-president of the Black Medical Student Association at the University of Toronto, who hosts a series of events about mental health in the Black community. Eden Abraham is a counselor at the Centre for Student Development and Counseling here at Ryerson. She joins us today to expand on the unique mental health challenges faced by members of the Black community. Thanks for coming in, Aiden. Thanks, Dan, for having me. So first and foremost, I just want you to tell me a little bit about uh, what informs your experience, uh, both with your career and uh, just personally. So I grew up in the West End. I grew up at Jane and Wilson um, and lived there for the majority of my life. Um, and uh, yeah, I then went to school uh, at Queens. Um, and that's where I really... Uh, growing up in the Jane and Wilson area, I was really surrounded with a lot of community. I was surrounded with folks that looked like me, that um, came from a similar part of the world that my parents came from, um, shared uh, the experience of being first generation, if not newcomers themselves. Um, and then when I went to Queens, that experience was very different in that the um, population was much more homogeneous, but in a different way. Mm -hmm. I would say it it was comprised of, a, a, there was like a lot of affluence. Um, uh, I, I really felt a sense of like being othered uh, because of my my black racial identity and, and that it was very much um, different from the majority of students that were there. And so I would say when I was there, I really experienced um, what it meant to have a loss of community or or not have so much community and um, sort of the stressful impacts of that, how isolating that could be. Um, and then, yeah, and then I came back to Toronto and did a lot of community work within the Jane and did sort of the Jane corridor um, at Jane and Wilson, Jane and Finch, and then at Jane and Woolner. And then I went on to do my master's at York. Um, and then, yeah, and then I went on to work in the Rexdale community for about five years and and now I'm here. Amazing. And you just joined uh, in August, right? At the... Yeah, that's right. And uh, August 19th was my first day. Awesome. Well, yeah. we're happy to have you in the studio and we're happy to have you at Ryerson. Thank course. you. I'm happy to be here. So uh, we're just obviously coming off of uh, Bell Let's Talk and a lot of mental health advocacy, um, as well as obviously now almost done uh, Black History Month. Mm -hmm. So when we talk about mental health, uh, can we talk about the term uh, as it's perceived as a neutral issue? Mm. 
Yeah, I think the term mental health can be quite evocative for people. I think, I think when we think about um, a, a neutral health term, we think of physical health. When when people use the language of physical health care or physical health, I think the the reaction is is less evocative or is less fraught. Whereas when we hear the term mental health, it tends to feel loaded. It tends to denote uh, perhaps something negative for some folks, um, and I think that's because of the the long-standing stigma attached to mental health. I think there has been such great important strides made towards destigmatizing mental health. And so, you know, my hope, and I think the hope of so many others, is that um, we we will get to a, a point where men, the term mental health feels less fraught and feels more neutral and mirrors the way that people perceive physical health and physical health care. Amazing. So... With that talk of neutrality as an issue, mm. uh, could you just sort of uh, describe some differences? Let's take, for example, if we have a black woman, uh, the issues that she might face in regards to her mental health in, compar in comparison to what like a white woman would face. Yeah, I, I think that's a, a great question. Um, so I think when we think about the things that a black woman would have to contend with that might be divergent from what a white woman would contend with, um, we can think about, you know, the the inherent um, experience of maybe like related to racism that a black woman would face that is very different from what a white woman would face. Certainly they would both experience issues related to um, gender discrimination, misogyny, things related to living in a patriarchal society. Um, but let's say, for example, having an adversarial or confrontational experience with the police. That's going to be stressful for anybody, regardless of race, regardless of gender. Um, that's, that's an inherently stressful experience. But let's say now for a woman who's uh, who is a black woman and she has that same experience, that's going to feel quite different. That's going to feel very, uh, very much more psychologically stressful in that um, there might be questions around, am I being targeted? Am I being um, discriminated against or being surveilled or being um, being sought out specifically for my race? And that feels less controllable. I can't control how I'm perceived or the race, the racism or implicit bias that, let's say, a police officer or somebody else might have towards me because of my race or towards a black woman. Um, and so they, black women and white women also move through the world in a very different way. And so that could be one example where they, they might both have a similar interaction, well, not a similar interaction, but perhaps a similar scenario, but the outcome could be very different. Um, the experience could be very different in a way that is really uh, driven by the difference in race. And then if we also think about um, racialized myths that we've internalized um, as Black women or even as a community, as a larger community, is uh, one of the myths is the myth of the strong Black woman. And so this is the idea that um, Black women are impervious to um, are impervious to like the 
the the challenges of the world that we can just take, 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 and we're going to bounce back. And certainly black women are resilient and our capacity to bounce back from adversity is is mind boggling. But at the end of the day, that myth erases or denies our humanity. Yeah, dehumanizes. Yeah, precisely. And so, uh, you know, even for for children, for black young girls, as early as five years old, they're perceived as more adult-like than their white female peers. And so they're seen as more independent. They're seen as needing less care, as needing less nurturing. And so from a very young age, black women are socialized to think that, you know, they just have to keep on going. They have to just sort of take everything that comes at them. And so that could impact help-seeking behaviors. And so we know that um, for early intervention is very important as it relates to mental health and mental health illness, um, particularly for complex mental health illnesses, for example, like psychosis. And so whereas a white woman doesn't have to contend with those same sort of racialized myths. And so um, a white woman white might be more likely or more um, it might be more easier for her to utilize healthcare services and so socially it might feel or culturally it might feel like something that's more accessible to her um, another piece would be sort of the the accessibility of um, appropriate mental health care services um, being able to access health care services that are culturally responsive. Well, because we live in um, in a society that is um, sort of driven by um, white ideas and whiteness, uh, white women can count on accessing mental health care services in the mainstream that are much more likely to be culturally responsive than, let's say, a black woman. And so, yes, there are some niche um, niche ser- services that Black women can access in Toronto, such as, let's say, Across Boundaries or Women's Health and Women's Hands. Um, and th- that's important, but it's there needs to be some there needs to be integration into the into the mainstream mental health care system. Um, so that way, Black women as well can access services in the mainstream mental health system that are culturally responsive. Um, so, yeah, I think there's a number of factors that really do influence and impact um, the mental health of black women in a way that's very different from white women. I think another piece would be um, if we look at the social determinants of health. Um, and so the social determinants of health would comprise of things like poverty, education, unemployment, um, uh, access to uh, adequate housing food security and we know that racism impacts your impacts uh, the ability of black folks to access um, things like affordable housing um, suitable employment good education mm-hmm. and so if if race so there's a psychological stress of experiencing racism but then there's also the systemic uh, barriers that arise as a result of racism because Okay, because of racism, I might not be able to access affordable housing. I might not be able to access things like uh, um, appropriate education or a good education, which then will impact my likelihood that I will experience a mental health illness. Mm -hmm. So you touched upon uh, racialized forms of discrimination. Mm -hmm. Um, 
I just want to pull a comparison for one second. Yeah. Where, uh, according to Dr. Uh, Thomas A. Vance, who is a predominant psychologist uh, who studies intersectional experiences down mm -hmm. at the University of Columbia, mm -hmm. or Columbia University rather, mm -hmm. um, he says that the black community suffers from an increased rate of mental health concerns, including anxiety and depression. Mm -hmm. Could that have some parallels between it in terms of racialized discrimination and stuff like this? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. So if we think about that on a on a macro level, um, we, if we think about racism on a macro level, that impacts um, how we're able to access appropriate healthcare services, how we're able, how Black folks are able to obtain um, non precarious employment, um, their access to education. So. If, if we're not able to access the things that are um, that are bolstering to our um, to our capacity to protect our mental health, then that's going to leave us more vulnerable to experiencing a mental health illness such as depression and anxiety. Um, and then we think about on the the micro level, the microaggressions that we might experience, that Black folks might experience on a day to day, and how the um, the experience of the psychological stress of racism that that black folks um yeah experience on a day-to-day -day is going to is going to diminish our capacity to cope over time so we realize that this is very much so a real thing yes that happens in the black community yes why then are these concerns so often uh silenced in the yeah. black community yeah so i i, I think that's a that's a a big question. Um, I think a big piece of that is around um, survivalist mentality. Uh, I think Black folks in Canada, I think Black folks anywhere, like in North America, have have had to survive um, quite quite a bit in their lives. Whether it's migrating to North America, learning a new language, forging a new life. Uh, you know, penetrating the the labor market, um, having to escape war, escape um, civil conflict. There's so much that our community has has gone through, and so I think there's some of well, we've survived so much. What's a little bit of sadness? What's a little bit of anxiety? Um, and so there's there's I think this erroneous belief that. Well, to say that I'm depressed or anxious is a sign of like moral failing, is a sign of weakness. Um, and that ties into what you said about like the difference between uh, little black girls and yeah, little white girls. That's it's, right. It's that emotional response. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So being able to sort of be vulnerable in that way feels feels dangerous. Feels. Um, feels like a threat to to our identity as a strong, resilient community. So if you've touched upon a variety of the stigmas yeah. that uh, members of the Black community face, um, I just want to know how, how this, at the end of the day, affects them on uh, a macro level in terms of uh, these individuals that are struggling mm -hmm. with their mental health, in terms of how yeah. they can get access, in terms mm -hmm. of uh, perception again. Yeah. So systemic barriers have really contributed to the suffering and the, the suffering of 
Black folks as it relates to a whole host of things, but as as is relevant to our conversation, mental illness. And so as as a consequence, it requires systemic solutions. So that means um, there needs to be, I think, more education within our schools starting at quite young around um, mental health literacy, um, working towards destigmatizing mental health illness. Um, there needs to be uh, more funding provided to culturally responsive mental health care services for Black folks. Uh, there needs to be uh, work done in so weaving culturally responsive services into the mainstream health system. Um, I think there also needs to be real meaningful um, redress in terms of the social determinants of health disparities. So really addressing those things. Um, and so I think there are things we could certainly do. Uh, the Black community can do things together on a community level. And, and those things are certainly happening um, all the time. Um, and I think the Black community has really done a lot towards making strides towards um, having more transparency around having these conversations. But I would really, I, that's why I, I really do appreciate that the city of Toronto has taken this step towards acknowledging the role that anti-Black racism has on the real lives of Black folks and the deleterious effects that it's creating for the mental health of Black folks. Um, I think, you know, what I would love to see, and I'm sure a lot of people would echo this, is um, continuing to take very meaningful steps towards addressing the systemic barriers and the systemic challenges that are um, that are compromising the social determinants of health for Black folks in Toronto and in Canada. Mm -hmm. And I feel like so. In terms of intersectionality, you obviously have yeah. the black community, which is intertwined with uh, cis males, cis females, mm -hmm. uh, non-gender, uh, non-binary mm -hmm. uh, identifying uh, individuals. Um, but another sense of intersectional identity that we have is that of the student experience. Yeah. So how about black students? What are the vulnerabilities that uh, they experience when it comes to their mental health? Yeah. If it changes at all or if it's come completely uh, the same. Yeah, I think black students um, face a unique set of challenges and that um, that they're having to to be very creative in, in financing their educations. I, I'm I th I've, I've seen firsthand the impacts that the cuts to OSAP have had um, on students, particularly black students, particularly students of color. Um, and how that's left a lot of them scrambling um, in terms of, you know, some have had to withdraw, take temporary withdrawals in order to work for six months in order to be able to pay for next semester. Um, I think also, I think what happens with, um, I think that a, a part of the experience of being a black person is that we're constantly told through implicit or explicit messaging that we're supposed to make ourselves smaller, that we're, we shouldn't take up so much space. And so we don't feel entitled to ask questions in class or to advocate for ourselves or to, let's say, challenge a professor that might be unfairly treating us or unfairly, so, sorry, not us, I'm not a student, let me make that clear, <laughs> but unfairly um, treating students. Um, and so I think they, their experience, they experience racism in the classroom. I think that's something that's certainly an occurrence. And I think their capacity or their ability to be able to advocate for themselves and to stand up for themselves is compromised by the 
the the racist idea that you know black folks should just be thankful for whatever they have and um they should just you know keep quiet or you don't want to be the angry black woman in your class you know always talking about race or always like crying about racism and so it really effectively renders people silenced is there anything else you'd like to add um yeah just just the piece around intersectionality i think it is also important to name that um you know you you asked me the question around the experience of how would the experience of a, of a black woman's mental health be different than a white woman's mental health um and i think it's important to to name that those those experiences are also further complicated around um i around pieces of around issues related to identity whether it be um, a black woman be, uh, being a member of the LGBTQ community or a black woman living living with a disability. And so all of those pieces further complicate um, the experience, the mental health experience of uh, communities that are sort of have been forced to the margins. Thank you so much, Eden. Uh, I can't thank you enough for coming on yeah, today. Thanks for um, I look forward to hearing uh, everything that's coming out with Black Mental Health Day coming up yeah. and seeing where that takes us and uniting uh, the community in terms of their mental health and making that a priority. Thank you. Thank you so much. Samir Bully is a medical student at the University of Toronto and the co-president of the Black Medical Student Association. They are an on-campus group that encourages and supports students through career events, mentorship, and community building. They are also hosting a series of events that are open to the greater community about mental health issues faced by Black people and other topics that impact the medical sector. He is here to share more about the mental health series and the initiatives that the Black Medical Student Association have achieved. Um, we're the BMSA, so we've been we've been in existence for about twenty years. We actually just had a twentieth anniversary, um, but we've never had like U of T is a class of two hundred sixty students. U of T Medicine has a class of 200, 260, 270 students a year, and uh, in twenty sixteen there was only one incoming Black student. Uh, that came into the class. Her name was Chica. She's literally, she was a superhero at that time because she really raised the alarm as to what was going on. Because even before that, um, there's studies, like in 2001, there's, per, there's studies from before that show that the schools had to work on diversity to make sure that they accurately represent the population that they have to they help, right? Like there's studies, that, like all the studies show that patients who feel comfortable with their doctors and doctors that they're familiar with have better outcomes. Mm -hmm. So when your patient population matches the doctors, that's when you have the best outcome. So we knew this in the early 2000s. But in 2016, this girl had to sound the alarm about, hey, why am I the only black person in class of 270? So the community got outraged. Like they came up, they started rallying, they said, no, this is outrageous. We need our doctors to support our people. And so that's that came, that came with the creation of the BSAP program which is what many of us came through. So it's a black student application program. So it's the same, we have the exact same criteria, but now they, they have an, es an extra essay that they let for us to talk about where we come from or why we should be considered. Because most of the black kids that come in, and I can tell you this as a president, we come from different socioeconomic backgrounds than everyone in our class. There was our first meeting, 
uh, the dean came to our meeting, and um, we were surprised. It's our first uh, medical student meeting. It's just 15 of us. We don't really know each other. It's like it's good times. We can get to know the old presidents. They're passing on some information, and the dean's just there, and he starts talking. We're like, whoa, why is the dean here? It's like this is just, we're just a student group. It doesn't matter. But he's clearly trying to you know make sure that the, our um, society's okay. Like we're good. Like how are we acclimating? Just asking nice questions. He was really trying to make sure we we're okay. So clearly we felt happy that he was there. Then he asked the question, um, so what do your parents do? Just a casual question. He asked everyone, what do your parents do? Everyone's going around the room. Some, some people said PSW. The most, someone said nurse. We had nobody in the room in medical school. We were all going to be doctors. Not one of us had a parent who was a doctor. This is complete. If you knew that our medical school class, at least half the kids in our class have a parent who's a doctor or know someone who's close to a doctor and can get in relations at any time. These are kids from high socioeconomic backgrounds that know exactly how to maneuver in these situations. But us... Where, like, my mom is a hotel mate. Like, we come from situations that we don't even know what, how to get into this type of stuff. So with the BMSA, uh, that, that being said, is the, a background as to why what the BMSA is and so why we can move so much now is because of the mobilization of our communities. We've had our, like, a doubling of our, like, a real swelling of our numbers. So now in the first two years of medical school, so, like, the class of 500 is clerkship. Our pre-clerkship is, like, 500 students. Of that, 30 of them are black. Still, like, now that's much better than one out of 250, but that's still nothing. Like, the GTA is 9% black, almost 10% black, and we can't even push, we can't even push close to those numbers. Mm -hmm. So it's like, we, we need to be asking for, like, accurate representation, but way more than that. This is, these are issues that are way downstream. Like, we need bigger, like, more income in our communities. What inspired the Mental Health in the Black Community series? from um, Anya, the, the BPAO, and our old presidents when we first came in last year, when I was a first year student. And um, two years ago, actually now, holy crap. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, so they gave us this event. They're like, hey, um, this is a speaker series, Black Mental Speaker Series events for learners. Um, you're going to use this to teach your other classmates about what's going on with Black Mental so that we like train other doctors, potential future doctors, so they start thinking about what's going on in the black community. So it's like, yeah, that sounds like a good event. We should definitely train our other classmates to come out to these events so they understand what's going on in the black community. Yeah, that should be great. So we line up these great speakers. We lined up her, so Anya. So she's like the the, the president of the Black Physician Association. And we lined up uh, n another big doctor. I think she was a social worker or psych psychologist. Amazing person. Like, whoever it was, it was an amazing person. We lined it up. I think the first meeting, I think, maybe 13 or 14, a dozen, a little 15 people showed up. And it was like mostly students, but like mostly BMSA students already who already knew this stuff. So we're like, well, what? This doesn't make any sense. Like we're really, like we're showing you that this could be so important to like changing the, how you look at the society. And this is really, really important to how you are gonna train as doctors. But then so I kind of got pissed off, like me and like a couple other people kind of got pissed off about these events. It's like, that doesn't mean anything. This is so useless. I know we have to, because she told us we have to do three of them in a year. So like, okay, let's start pushing it somewhere else. Let's, 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 let's bring people who are actually hungry for knowledge into these rooms. I'm like, yo, let's bring the community. Like, like I grew up with these. I know all my people would love to hear this stuff and stuff, right? They would love to see these doctors. On the, it's like breaking the, the barrier between medicine and, like, the community has been, like, so polarized right now. It's like you, you would never, like, people are scared of the doctor. The doctor used to be, like, a person who's in your community, a person you know. But people don't even know who they are. Like, it's just a confusing person who, oh, he just tells me medications and I might take them. They don't have any idea about how to lead their community or who the people are. So um, with Anya and that, so then we're like, yo, let's, let's start these events. Let's, let's advertise to these people. So we started blasting it. 
Next event has like 40, 50 people. It's good. A second one, you know, is getting better. We got lineup for speakers. Third one, even better. Like 100 people show up. But th- but this one, um, something something different happened. It was like um, there was there was a person there who came, he clearly came looking for help, and he started talking about how like I. I, d- I come to these events and you guys are all talking about this good stuff about how we need more resources and we need to do this and we need more of that. But like, where is it? Like, wh- where what's going on? Like, you guys are talking about, it, we don't see it. And like, w- we knew this. Like, we knew what we were doing, but we thought we could like, hey, just let's us raise the alarm. Let's just maybe raising awareness is like a first step to a lot of it. But that that really impacted a lot of us too because we we're like. Yo, no, we need to get more into it. We need to like really, really start pushing even more. Like this, this can't be something where you just passively go with it. Let, let's try to use this anger in this room because you know, it's emotional in those rooms. Like people are talking about trauma and stuff. There was a lady who said, if you, she lives in the West End. She's like, she was an Ethiopian lady. She's like, I'm also Ethiopian, so like I did, I did relate to her a little bit. She's like, if you, if you go to every house in this neighborhood, there's not one house that doesn't have a son or a daughter that's lost to to the criminal justice system. Someone's been shot. Someone's been in jail. Someone knows someone who's, and it's it's trauma, and it, and it just it's like you hear this type of stuff, and you wonder like how how can any society that's as rich as this not not a poor society? This is not a poor, it's the tenth richest country in the world, and how do we let anything like this happen? Right? This is this these are the questions that we started we had to grapple with. So this year we came out like I, I became the president after the third one. So like. Then it's like okay, let's go all out. Let's like really get into the political advocacy stuff. Let's not let's not wait for anybody. Like there's nobody to wait for. Nobody's coming. Mm-hmm. So it's like, so we decided yo on the fourth one, which we just held like a month ago. We're like no, what we're gonna do, we're gonna make these events really really targeted and really specific to creating a cohesive environment and a cohesive community that wants to come back and support. So we started really really blasting it to everyone. Now now, now so the last one had like. We actually had to turn people away for the last one. We had to like stop selling tickets, like literally, because the room only could hold 150 people. So we capped it, got everyone in the room, had a good event, did the networking. But now it's like now the community's clearly start, we see the same faces now. This is like so now you see the community starting to build, and like it's the same people asking about psychologists, psychiatrists, uh, social workers, um, insurance workers, black b- restaurant owners. Like people are starting to come to get known. Like now we're trying to create something different. What stigmas have been addressed during these events? And also, what are some of the stigmas that you've seen within the black community? Let me just start off with this single fact. So this is a study that's coming out uh, from Dr. Fatima Jackson-Best, who is, uh, if you ever heard of Pathways, like Pathways to Care, like all, it's like through high schools, like everywhere. It's like a really big program to helping like black youth, you underserved youth. Mm-hmm. And um, she, she, she has a stat now, so she's been studying. The average time for, for a white person or a white kid to get um, treatment with a therapist, the wait time, is eight months. That's a long time. So that's eight months is a long time. The average time for a black kid is 16 months. And, you know, the 23% of the time a black person introduced to the mental health system is via the police. So we're taken there by force most of the time. We have to wait longer to get treatment. And then they, they just expect that everything just is just okay, like these systems are okay and how they work. So... Um, with mental health in the black community and the stigma, yeah, there's, st- there's stigma and there's also just lack of just, they don't care about the system at all. And the stigma does exist in, all, in ourselves too. We can't just ignore the, the, the internalized racism that we have, obviously, right? When you're told your whole life that you will never be anything, you're just a thug, you, you're, your whole existence, you can never be intelligent. I, like, I was put, literally when I, um, I was in grade nine, I was an IB student in grade nine um, at Weston. And a Western Collegiate, so in the West End, 
And um, literally, for the, so I went for the basketball team and everything. And I made the basketball team as a junior and, and whatever. And um, they go around checking people's grades. And half the people on the, my team is obviously failing, right? It's a team in the hood, like, like what do you expect? So they're going through, I, I remember we have our first practice. Everyone's just sitting there. Um, there's only like four or five kids from ninth grade. And most people are like the older kids, right? So we're sitting there. They don't know who we are because we're ninth graders, right? So they're like, my name's Samir Bullet, But they don't know my last name. They just know my name's Samir. So they go around saying, this guy, you're failing four courses. You can't be on the team. You're failing three courses. You need to fix yourself. You can't be on the team. They, get to, they, they say mine. They say, Samir, you're failing five courses. You can't be on the team. I'm like, what? It's like, it's like are, are you Samir Ahmed? I'm like, no. It's like, no, I'm Samir Bully. I'm an IB. I'm not failing anything. But the assumption was that I am a failing student because I'm playing basketball and I'm black. Like, that was the fr- I couldn't be the other Samir in, in IB because I must be an Indian kid or something because my name is also kind of Indian, right? Like, there's Samir's an Indian. So it's like... Just the implicit bias in everything is just pervasive through our system. And those are the things that just impact kids consistently. And you can't just expect everyone to get through it. Like, I got through it. It's fine. Like, I, I went to, I also skipped a lot of school. Like, I, like I skipped school like crazy because to me it was learning with something internal. Like, I could do it on my own. So, but you can't expect every kid to be like that. So, like, when, when we get to this point, it's like, hey, we have to advocate that, no, these spaces need to be conducive to success like they are for other kids. Because those other kids get education consistent. They get tutoring. They're, they're always on the point. If they go off in summer, they keep learning. Like, they have camps and they have programs. We don't have anything because our parents have to work all the time. Like, that's, like that's it. Like, that's, that's the biggest problems here. And, yes, there's stigma. And, yes, the stigma is internal. But there's too many pressures outside to just blame ourselves, too. So uh, that, that's where I'm at. Can you explain what separates the black community's mental health needs from other ethnicities? We have an epidemic going on. Um, people are in absolute crisis. When people are coming to these events, I had I had ladies talking to me about, can you find someone for my son? Can you help me f- talk about this? Like, he's in jail. We need someone to, like, talk to him. We don't know what to do. Like, there's no resources. We don't know where to go. We have Taibu Clinic, but Taibu can't do it all for everybody. There's not, there's not enough resources for everyone to go around, and especially because there's no lack of economic empowerment. Like, even when we get help, it's always temporary. Like, w- the, number one, the number one health issue period is poverty it's it's not it's not like we keep playing with cancer and like that these are all things that are a product of poverty and just not having enough opportunity to survive so when we keep like moving the goalposts it's like hey like we need like what's going on in these communities what should we do how can we help you guys it's like give us economic opportunities so we can be self-sufficient like that is how you win like it's it's not even that hard and like they keep saying oh maybe we should give another program here or like six million dollars to the student the student hubs in the libraries or something it's like you you miss the point consistently we need programs where you can take kids in high school and you put them into university and put them in placements so then they get jobs right after and you promise them jobs like good paying jobs middle union jobs middle income jobs that can support a family you can't have everybody working in a factory working at mcdonald's or working on wall street like you can't just be two things like a gig economy where like everyone's working for uber or like like it's not sustainable is the point and that's what we're getting from these community meetings like everyone's worried about their kids everyone is worried about their kids man like that's the craziest thing like we have parents coming and breaking down about like what like they don't know what's gonna happen they're they're just scared they're like oh my kid it's a good kid they've done their best their whole life they were good but now they just get they're getting in environments they don't know what to do they're at home sometimes like lazy they call them lazy but they have no opportunities they don't know where to go like even when they go out they get in trouble because there's nothing for them so it's like what, what we're missing the point here yeah and the black community is the biggest like we're in the deepest crisis because we've been in this crisis we we live in communities that are filled with ptsd with no chance of therapy like zero chance and that that's the problem 
Like you, you see, you see gun violence going on in these communities. Like how do you expect to have a, a park in a community get shot up, and then you expect your kids to be okay playing there like ever again, or going out at night? How do you expect their parents to sleep at night? Like you, you don't think of people as being human. Like I, I'm going to psychiatry, so like I like this is where I, I put my bread and butter. Like it's like well, how do people? Why do people do what they do, and how do they behave? And like you have to take into account everything into people's environments and we just we've been like we've been removing so much of what makes people people and just saying like no you should be i survived it so you should too like that type of thing and that's that's ridiculous because we don't all come from the same place and we don't all have the same capacity and that's as humans we can do better so why not do better like it's very simple Here's what else we're following this week. Harvey Weinstein has been found guilty on two counts of sexual assault on Monday. However, he was found not guilty on two counts of predatory sexual assault. After the convictions, while in an ambulance, Weinstein was rerouted to the hospital for chest pains, heart palpitations, and high blood pressure, according to his attorney, Donna Rotuno. Protesters were escorted off a railway blockade in Tyendinaga Mohawk Territory on Monday. However, the outpouring of support for the Wet'suwet'en Pipeline protests in British Columbia are still proving strong. Hours after the Tyendinaga blockade was torn down, protesters established a new blockade on rail tracks in Hamilton. More blockades went up throughout Ontario, while more protesters flocked to the BC Legislature. Ryerson University has received six proposals for the new student government structure. Ian Brennan will be the lead process officer. He is from BDO Canada, which provides accounting, tax, and advisory services to a range of clients, which includes four current Ryerson students and one graduate. BDO will assist the student government selection process committee. Unfortunately, my time, as well as Lauren's, has come to an end here at Blue and Gold. I'll be joining Global News' Political Affairs Bureau as an editorial intern, and Lauren will be joining CTV's Your Morning as their production intern. We'll be survived, of course, by the wonderful Latoya Powell as host, and welcoming Sarah Chu as our new executive producer. That's all for this week's episode of Blue and Gold. Thanks for listening. You can catch up with us next week for more of your community's top stories, or check out everything we talked about online at ryersonian.ca. Blue and Gold is a production of the Ryersonian and the Ryerson School of Journalism. Our hosts are Dan Drigo and LaToya Powell, with executive producing done by myself, Lauren Davis. Our editor-in-chief is Talene Loschiavo. Managing editor, Isabel Kirkwood. Instructors, Peter Baker George and H.G. Watson. Graphics by Brent Smith. Special thanks to Angela Glover, Lindsay Hanna, Daniela Aleiru, and Gary Gould. Music this week provided by We Star. I'm Lauren Davis. Thanks for listening.